Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are still in the midst of a break in between series with Jim Jordan, and here we have a talk from Rich Bledsoe in what he calls the new demonic, how the demonic is expressing itself in our modern age. This talk is about 20 years old, but we think the way that Rich looks at the text of Scripture and applies it to the world will be very useful to you. It has just been announced that Rich Bledsoe and Peter Lightheart will be teaching a class on a theology of history coming up in the month of May. James Jordan will also be in attendance. We are very excited about this course, and for more information and to register, you can find a link in the show notes or on our website, theopolisinstitute.com. We want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this time of teaching. And here is Rich Bledsoe discussing the new demonic. Well, we just sat through a whole bunch of liturgy, which is fun. It's really fun to come here. This is vigorous liturgy. This is not boring liturgy. I may do another little liturgical thing, and Jim, I think I'll have this printed out for I speak the next time. How many of you have ever heard our red St. Patrick's breastplate? Most of you have. It's wonderful. And we have used it actually as our confession of faith in my church. I'm going to read at least part of it. Maybe I'll read the whole thing. Because this just makes my blood flow. You know, This is just exhilarating to me. And this is how it goes. The breastplate of St. Patrick. I arise today through a mighty strength, the invocation of the Trinity, through belief in the threeness, through confession of the oneness of the creator of creation. I arise today through the strength of Christ with his baptism, through the strength of his crucifixion with his burial, through the strength of his resurrection with his ascension, through the strength of his descent for his judgment of doom. I rise today through the strength of the love of the cherubim in obedience of armies in the service of the archangels in hope of resurrection to meet with reward in prayers of patriarchs, in predictions of prophets and preachings of apostles, in faiths of confessors, in innocence of holy virgins, in deeds of righteous men. I rise today through the strength of heaven, light of sun, brilliance of moon, splendor of fire, speed of lightning, swiftness of wind, depth of sea, stability of earth, firmness of rock. I rise today through God's strength to pilot me, God's might to uphold me, God's wisdom to guide me, God's eye to look before me, God's ear to hear me, God's word to speak for me, God's hand to guard me, God's way to lie before me, God's shield to protect me, God's host to secure me against snares of devils, against temptations of vices, against inclinations of nature, against everyone who shall wish me ill, afar and anear, alone and in a crowd. I summon today all of these powers between me and these evils, against every cruel and merciless power that may oppose my body and my soul, against incantations of false prophets, against black laws of heathenry, against false laws of heretics, against craft of idolatry, 
against spells and smiths and wizards, against every knowledge that endangers man's body and soul. Christ to protect me today against poison, against burning, against drowning, against wounding, so that there may come abundance of reward. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ in breadth, Christ in length, Christ in height, Christ in heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of every man who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. I rise today through a mighty strength, the invocation of the Trinity, through belief in the threeness, through confession of the oneness. Through the confession of the oneness of the Creator of creation. Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of Christ. May thy salvation, O Lord, be ever with us. Amen. Now, St. Patrick was one of a host of monkish missionaries who first conquered what we today call Europe, if you call Ireland Europe. Ireland's somewhere in the extent of that. But when these missionaries first went to these outposts of heathendom, they encountered every kind of demonology, every kind of black art, every kind of deviltry. And they openly encountered that. Now, one of the things that, if you're a reader of Biblical Horizons literature, if you're a reader of some of the things Jim has done, it would appear, if we take the Bible as our map, that we have just come through something like a cycle of civilization. And in some ways, we appear to be starting over again we're going to go through another cycle of civilization. And in this, if you will, triple cycle of civilization, what you have is a kind of development. And the development that we see in the Old Testament is first a kind of tribal life. And in tribal life, it would appear that dark powers are met in a most direct sense. If we would today go to the tribes of New Guinea or if you went to the villages of India... If you were to go to actually many of the countries of the Middle East that are Islamic, because Islamic people, in spite of the fact that they worship Allah and supposedly have banished all of crass paganism, most Islamic people in the back deserts are as animistic as anybody in Africa. And there is an encounter through witch doctors, this sort of thing, very directly with dark powers. Then there is a second phase of civilization when cities begin to develop and monarchs develop. And you have, at that point, something that is more indirect in terms of the encounter with evil. At that point, people probably aren't talking straight to snakes or straight to sorcerers or straight to wizards, but there is some other kind of encounter with evil dark powers. And then you come to a third phase of civilization which in the Old Testament we find Jim's going to be teaching on Daniel, is really covered in this whole period of the Babylonian captivity. And you have these giant empires, which culminate in the Roman Empire, and these giant empires, once again you would find an even more remote encounter with powers of darkness and powers of evil. In Western civilization, 
if we look at St. Patrick, I mean, I just love this part about protect me from incantations and smiths. What's, I don't even know what a smith is. What's a smith? But I take it as some kind of wizard because it's right in there with wizards and they're cursing people and they're doing all kinds of black and dark things. There's no question when Boniface went to Germany, when St. Patrick went to Ireland, when Augustine went to England, that they encountered dark powers in a very direct way. And when you read the remarkable accounts of these missionary endeavors, you find the boldest kind of encounters with the gods of these people in the conquest. So you have the famous story of Boniface cutting down the giant oak and so on. There's a wonderful story of St. Patrick, in fact, directly challenging the gods and the demons of one of the tribes. And just this extraordinary conquest, and this is when the conversions began. We find that after the conversion of the beginning, initial conversion of Europe, that monarchies begin to develop, and these monarchs unite the tribes. And then we find probably from the time of Martin Luther on, the beginning of something like a world civilization. And we've come to a culmination of world civilization now. We live in a world city. And this world city is, I think, the sense of what I want to talk about tonight. The sense of this has been captured perhaps better by C.S. Lewis than anyone. C.S. Lewis is, now if you look at the Inklings, Lewis was not a great artist. Tolkien was a great artist. Everyone acknowledged Tolkien was a great artist. Owen Barfield was the better speculative thinker, a very profound speculative thinker. C.S. Lewis is the John Bunyan of our age. Just as for 300 years every home had a Bible and a copy of Pilgrim's Progress, everybody knows who C.S. Lewis is today. Everybody does. It's just astonishing. He's the one Christian figure everybody knows about, and everybody's read some of his books, and he is the most reliable guide to mere Christianity of anybody out there. And his great virtue as a writer is he is so clear. He's like the waters in the Florida Keys. You can see to the bottom of it. He could make the most complex. He's, he's better than Rush Limbaugh. He makes the complex simple and comprehensible. And he has understood, particularly, you see the development of these themes in screw tape letters, where he takes the devil very seriously. Here's a modern intellectual in Oxford University taking the devil very seriously. And you see him develop this theme in his space trilogy, and when you read that hideous strength, which is very allegorical, they're almost stick figures, it's not a great work of art, it is a profound work of prophecy. And if anybody has understood many things in our own time, it's Lewis, and he has understood something of the intersection of dark powers with our modern civilization. In Screwtape Letters, he somewhere actually gives us in encapsulated form the thesis that he developed so profoundly in that hideous strength and, of course, develops in philosophical form in the abolition of man. It's the same argument. And what he says in Screwtape, he has Screwtape writing to his nephew, and he says, the funniest of all objects is the materialist magician, someone who, of course, doesn't believe in anything supernatural, but is, in fact, entirely controlled by supernatural and dark powers. And, of course, that's exactly the... How many of you have read that hideous strength? That's exactly the theme of that hideous strength. The criminal, just to give you, if you ever read the story, there were a number of anti-utopias that were written in the 40s, the two most famous ones being 1984 and Brave New World. 
The other anti-utopia, great anti-utopia with C.S. Lewis is that hideous strength. It's the only one with a happy ending because he believed in Jesus. It's also the retelling of the story of the Tower of Babel. That's a major theme of the whole thing. But a criminal has his head chopped off, and this head, they believe they have reconstituted the brain. But the essential theme of the book is that dark spirits or demonic powers enter this head, and they actually give orders to the echelon of this scientific enterprise at this little university, which is going to take over the world. And this thing actually speaks to them. And they've become materialist magicians. It's all done under the name of scientific reductionism, but in fact they are controlled by dark powers. Now, we live in an age when we, I believe, have entered something like, if you go back to St. Patrick or St. Boniface, any of these early missionaries, we have a new wilderness in front of us. But the new wilderness is the technological empire that we've created. The gods that we see are not the animistic gods that stand behind giant oak trees or giant fierce animals, but they're the gods that inhabit, in fact, the works of our own hands, the technology of our own. And we've created a whole new environment. Just as primitive people were terrified of nature, so now we've created an environment where we can terrify ourselves with the work of our own hands. You know, all we have to do is drop a couple of bombs and... Yeah, the power of these things. You, you just fly in a modern jet plane. You get on one of these 747s, you stand it on end. It's, what is it, a 50-story building? And this thing actually flies in the sky. It's just astonishing. They can make this thing go up and around the earth and land the thing. And you've got 250 people in this thing. And you feel the awesome power of this, you see. Well, there's all of this new environment. And the environment's not a forest. It's not rocks and trees and oceans and the power of nature, it's the power of the work of our own hands. So the city, the modern city has, I think, following Lewis, is still occupied by these dark powers, and in the church, we have got to learn how to encounter these dark powers. So what I'm suggesting tonight is that we have something probably of a deficient if you will, demonology. And I, maybe I'll go out of here and you'll say Bledsoe's has become a raving this or that, I don't know, but if you'll turn to this passage in Mark, Mark chapter 9, not 9, 6, that's where it is. I come from Boulder, Colorado. When I move around the country and I tell people I'm a pastor in Boulder, people's response is usually something like, oh, I'm so sorry. There, it is not an easy place to minister. There was in this last year a fairly extensive sociological, some kind of survey that was taken of about a hundred places in the country. And the only place that was more consistently liberal than Boulder County in the country was Marin County, which is where San Francisco is. So even by objective standards, it isn't just my feeling about it or kind of the anecdotal sense about Boulder. It really is true. It, it is kind of a liberal empire. But in that little liberal empire, which Bobo's in Paradise at least references, says Boulder is the quintessence of Bobo's. And what's the, now explain it again, the thesis of this book is that, because I haven't read it. See, I, I always tell, Jim always says, have you read this? And I say no. And I say, it's like my friends from Wisconsin and Minnesota that listen to Garrison Keillor and don't understand why it's funny. See, so, so I haven't read Bobo's in Paradise. But the thesis of it is that Bohemians and 
the bourgeois have come together and you've got something like granola liberals. Well, see, I'm a granola conservative, is what National Review would call so I guess, because I, you know, I like herbs. I like alternative doctors and that sort of thing, and I think there's some good things to come out of it. But at any rate, you have this combination of things. But the interesting thing is that in this something like liberal empire, the church has become publicly a recognized entity by various procedures that I don't quite understand, I have become something like the chaplain to the city. And I have, it seems, access to almost everyone and anyone in the city. And what I've found over the years, and I'll tell you a line I've used till it's threadbare, that'll be kind of my opening to this, but what I have found is that the people in Boulder, Colorado, who are the most open are people who are in positions of authority and leadership. And that's because they're so desperate. And see, I don't think this is at all unique in Boulder. I think you'd find this in Washington, D.C. You'd find it here. You'd find it almost anywhere. Because these people, in fact, know that they cannot fulfill the mandate that they have. And a number of years ago, in our little ministerial association, the way this began, we would invite city officials to come and speak once a month. Just tell us your view of the city. Tell us what. And then we would ask these people, what do you want us to pray for? And the way we began to couch it was, what do you want us to pray for that no man can help you with? And we began, for example, when the district attorney came and spoke to us, the new district attorney. We had a relationship with the old one, too. I was kind of the point man, called her up. I said, Mary, uh, Mrs. and Mrs. Keenan, would you come and speak to us? And by the way, we pray for people, and we pray for things that no man or no woman can help you with. And she was a lapsed Catholic, as I find many people in public service in probably especially in liberal cities are lapsed something or other because city service and political service has become their new church. Community service is virtually their religious affiliation. Well, when she came, she brought a list like this. And she took this really seriously. And this is not untypical. She brought a list like this. And she was perfectly serious. And she said, well, you can pray for this and this and this and this. And then, kind of jokingly, she said, you can also pray for somebody who's tall, dark, and handsome. Because she'd been widowed for a number of years. We prayed for those things, and she wanted to come back. Because she said, every one of them happened. And I say that seriously. Every one of them happened. Including someone who is tall, dark, and handsome. <laughs> and she was wed by... One of the, another thing that's happened is a kind of breach of the Roman Catholic Protestant barrier. She was married by my friend, Father Bill, and she now is a faithful attender at Mass, and her daughter, who has been a lifelong alcoholic and full of all kinds of problems, has involved in some kind of Protestant Bible study and has been converted and just astonishing things. Now, I'll tell you that one little story because it's my conviction that the new defenders, and see if you talk to St. Patrick or St. Boniface, who are they? Well, they're the defenders and protectors of the people who are under attack. And in this new technological wilderness, the people who ought to be the defenders and protectors in their own city are the pastors of that city. Pastors of that city have a unique kind of authority that I think no one else does. And there is a kind of authority that is given to us, and we literally are able to be defenders and protectors of these people. I'll tell you the second talk I give, I'm 
I think I may just tell some stories about Boulder. But one of the things that I've used till it's almost threadbare, initially, as with so many things, this was a seed idea I picked up from Jim. One of the things that became clear to me, and I've just used this with everyone, and I've just been astonished at the doors it opens up. Just, geez, just come on in. You're the only person who understands. Yes, come right in. Can you help me with this? Nobody else because you have these terrified people. That in the Bible, a period of completion, obviously, this is one of those obvious things, but is a period of seven, seven years. If you really want to see something accomplished, you probably can't accomplish anything that's lasting in less than about seven years, because that's time period that God has established. It's very interesting that in America, since the late 1960s, almost without exception, this isn't just true in Boulder, this is true in your town, wherever you come from, almost without exception, the lifespan of anyone in any public office, whether it's a university president, a police chief, a sheriff, a fire chief, a mayor, it doesn't matter what it is, the lifespan in that particular office is between three and four years. Now, what that means, Jesus got crucified at what? Three and a half years. It means literally what you're seeing is anybody in a position of authority getting crucified at about three and a half years. It just happens. For example, the last university president we had, who I knew his wife quite well, I knew her reasonably well, and I knew him a little bit, lasted for four years. Between three and four years, there was a scandal that was rolled out, which he had almost nothing to do with, but Scandal was rolled out, and his head rolled, and he was gone. When Ms. Hoffman came in, who's the current university president, on my second or third visit to her, I told her this. I just told her this theological fact that, look, seven years is what it takes to accomplish something. At University of Colorado, if you go to the office of the Hall of Presidents, and you just stand and you look at the portraits of the presidents of University of Colorado, 14 years, 28 years, 34 years for Mr. Norland. Fairly long lifespans until you get to the late 60s. And in the late 60s, like that, from 1968 on, nobody survived more than four years. Well, what that means is the second my authority begins to make some traction, and the second I begin to achieve something, by golly, I get crucified and I'm gone. So all that happens is things go in big circles. The next person comes in and they don't get established either. And there's a new crucifixion at three and a half to four, three between three and four years and nothing happens. So I tell these officials, Betsy Hoffman, who's the president of the university now, you know, nobody has survived for more than four years. What do you want to do while you're here? Well, she's got big doings she wants to do. She's an extremely capable woman. I said, well, Betsy, I want to pray that you survive for more than four years, that you make it to ten. And she just, eyes water up. Thank you. Thank you. I think she'll make it. Because she's a very capable woman, but in need of supernatural help. That line, though, has opened so many doors to me because everybody who's in office knows that. And they're terrified. They're terrified of the tarring and the feathering that's coming down the road. And the truth is they need protection just as much as a tribal chief or 
somebody in Ireland would have needed 900 or 1,000 years ago, and from the same kind of powers. This story of the beheading of John the Baptist, which Jeff read, do I need to read it again? I'll read it again. Now King Herod heard of him, for his name had become well known, and he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. And others said, it is Elijah. And others said, it is the prophet, or one like the prophets. But when Herod heard this, he said, this is John whom I beheaded, and he has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her, because John had said to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Then Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. Then an opportune day came when Herod on his birthday gave a feast for his nobles, the high officers and chief men of Galilee. And when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced and pleased Herod and those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you want, and I will give it to you. And he also swore to her, Whatever you ask of me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. So she went out and asked her mother, What shall I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. Yet because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took away his corpse and laid it in a tomb. Now, this passage doesn't say a thing about dark powers. It's just a passage about a gruesome passage. Does anybody here know who Rene Girard is? You see, your, see your hands up? Some of you do. Rene Girard is interesting literary theorist, Frenchman who began as an atheist and took the Bible as his guide to the European novel and ended up, he's come back pretty far to orthodoxy. He's become more or less an orthodox Roman Catholic, made a huge, huge move. But almost the Classian Gerardian passage is the passage in Mark chapter 5. I won't read this to you, I'll just tell you the story and I'll draw the relevant issues out of it. It's the story of the Gadarene madman. Gadarene madman if you remember, lived amongst the tombs. He couldn't be bound, couldn't be chained. He was naked. And he would cut himself and cry out day and night while he cut himself with stones. Saw Jesus coming. And while Jesus is coming, these powers within him know who Jesus is. He says, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? And I implore you by God that you do not torment me. And Jesus speaks to the spirits and tells them to come out says, what is your name? And he says, my name is Legion. You all know the story. And they go into the herd of pigs, and they fly off the cliff, and the man is clothed and in his right mind. However, the community are terrified because of what Jesus has done, and they beg him to leave. Now, here's what Gerard does with this. He points out that this man is the classic scapegoat. 
He says, how is it that communities which get themselves full of all kinds of tensions and all kinds of rivalries and all kinds of the interaction becomes virtually impossible between people. Well, the way this gets resolved is almost, it would appear by magic. One object or one person is picked out and everybody projects their rivalries and their conflicts onto this one person and this one person becomes the bearer of all of these things and sometimes by means of violence. He has a whole theory of violence. This is where violence comes from. And this violence that's done to this one person, sometimes by a community execution, for example, it appears magically restores peace and unity and harmony and unity to the community. And, in fact, so much so that his theory is that, and I think it's pretty well grounded, good anthropology, his theory is that, well, where is it that, that all of the ancient gods came from? Well, the ancient gods were, in fact, those who had been picked out as scapegoats. They were, in some sense or other, ritually executed. And the harmony that was restored to the community was so extraordinary that it was the conclusion of the community that the person they executed was really a god, and he is therefore enthroned in the heavenly pantheon. A very interesting theory about where ancient gods, the belief in ancient gods came from. This is almost the classic story regarding that, the classic Gerardian passage. And this man, you see, bears the demons of the whole community. However many people there are in this community, Every one of them has a demon attached to them, and every one of these demons is projected. The demons are all projected onto this poor madman. He lives amongst the tombs. That symbolically means that he is dead already. He's already executed. He lives amongst the tombs. Secondly, he is naked. And the meaning of this is that he bears the shame of the community. And the third thing it says is that he cuts himself, and in the Greek, it says it cuts himself with stones. In the Greek, it's autolapsus. He stones himself, actually. It's like ritual stoning. Takes the stone, cuts himself. He's stoning himself, so it's like a ritual execution that the man experiences constantly. And he experiences this on behalf of the community. And because of this man, the community is sane and peaceful and harmonious. Jesus comes along tells the demon or the demons to leave the man, and they beg Jesus not to torment them because the time hasn't come yet. He sends them into a herd of pigs. This is a Gentile area. Sends them into a herd of pigs. The swine run off a cliff and go into the abyss and are drowned. Gerard makes the point that, in actuality, the pigs are a mirror image of the city. Not a very flattering picture, you see. But Jesus, instead of allowing the demons to go back into the city and the people, sends them into the pigs who are unclean animals. And then, you see, everything is reversed. It's the city itself that's executed because these pigs, one of the ways you would ritually execute in the ancient world is you would throw somebody off a cliff. These pigs fly off a cliff, they run off a cliff in their madness, and they all drown in the abyss. And of course, the abyss is actually symbolic, I suppose, of hell. So they're sent away. They're not allowed to come back into the world, but they're actually sent away and sealed. So this is actually a reversal. The gathering madman is sitting at the top of the hill. He's sane, 
clothed in his right mind, and for the first time he's saying, and I don't know if it says it in this version, I don't think it does, but he wants to go with Jesus. And Jesus says, no, you go back and you tell everybody the great things that God has done for you. You see, this is a reversal because in this version, it's the city that's executed and the scapegoat is saved. So Jesus completely reverses the whole thing. Now, the reason I bring this up is Rene Girard is fascinating. And his exegesis is sometimes astonishing. It's a remarkable how well it fits. You see, he doesn't just do eisegesis. He really takes a passage apart and he makes it fit. However, at one point, at least to my knowledge, he is still not an Orthodox Catholic or an Orthodox Protestant or an Orthodox Orthodox in that he still does not believe that the devil has any ontological reality. He's a complete satanic, if you will, reductionist. And he sees the devil as being sort of this accumulation of projection of human actions. And even with his theory, it's astonishing how much he can explain. And it's astonishing how much of human behavior he can explain. But he's a reductionist. The text clearly is not reductionistic. It's pretty clear that this is really talking about a series of or actual ontological realities. These are real things, if you will, that occupy this man. Now, if you'll go forward to the story of John the Baptist, the reason I picked this out is because it shows us the more, see, in the story of the Gadarene madman, you have, this is tribal stuff almost, you see. This is the direct encounter with the snake. I think if you look at the story of John the Baptist, you're going to see the more veiled version that we live with. And we clearly live with a more veiled version. Now, before I go on, let me say this. There are, in the Bible, a number of things that I don't think we have resolution for theologically. For example, what's the difference in the saints' experience of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament and the saints' experience of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament? Now, we know there's a difference, and we have a number of theories about it, but it's difficult. See, it's fuzzy. You know the day of Pentecost is something that's very definitive. Something happened, and there's some kind of newness and authority and so on that's given the church. But defining exactly what that is is difficult, is it not? You read the Psalms, it's perfectly clear that whoever the psalmist is is just as intimate with God as anybody in the New Testament era. And a number of the theories, I think, don't work particularly well. It is clear that the Holy Spirit is more universally given in some sense for ministry. In the New but I don't know that we have any exhaustive, we just know it's different. We know it's better in the New Testament in some way. Now, precisely the same thing is true with dark or with demonic powers. It is perfectly clear, if you read, for example, the book of Galatians, that in the Old Testament, or prior to the coming of Jesus, there is some kind of dominion that the dark powers have over most of the world, and presumably Israel is in some sense exempt, but over most of the world, that is not true in the New Testament. It's clear that there is a kind of directness in the Old Testament or Old Covenant era that does not exist in the New Covenant era. But exactly what that difference is, I'm not sure we're particularly clear on. You see, I'm drawing an analogy there. Do you understand? So there is a difference, but I don't know that I can define very well what it is. We do know, and I'll just give you this account because this is quite firsthand. One of the people I've made friends with this year is a very dear Roman Catholic priest. 
whose name was Father Herman, and he appears to have the gift of exorcism. The diocese in Colorado, they send three or four people to him a month. People come from all over the country to be prayed for by this man. I've been involved in taking several parties to him that nobody else could help, and boom! Jeez, I mean, it's just really incredible. I'll tell you, if you want, I can tell you some of those stories. But Anyway, he's not just some sort of third-world exorcist. He's a very well-educated Roman Catholic priest. And Roman Catholic priests tend to be far better educated than Protestant pastors. It's true in India, too. And I said, I put this up on, if any of you read Biblical Horizons, I put this up once. I don't know if anybody would remember it, but... But I asked him once, I said, have you ever seen a possession in America? I said, never. He's been here since, I don't know how long he's been here, actually, 16, 18 years. He says, no, I've never seen a possession in America. I said, did you ever see one in India? He said, hundreds. He said, in India, it's just like the Bible. He says, these people worship demons, and these demons take them over. So these people throw themselves in wells, throw themselves in fires, throw themselves off cliffs, because he says, these demons want to send them to hell. He says, they go everywhere to get healed of this. They spend all their money on witch doctors. Nothing helps. Finally, they come to the church, which is the last place they want to go. They come to the church. They're prayed for, an exorcism is done. And he says, whole families are converted. He says, by the way, I'll tell you an aside. This is just an aside, but this is something he says to me. He says, the difference between Hindus and Islamic people. He's terrified of what Islam is doing. He says, why doesn't anybody tell the truth about Islam in America? He says, many Hindus, he's got this accent, many Hindus are happy children. He says, not all, but he says, many are happy children. He says, I've never met a happy Islamic person. He says, they're unhappy wherever they are because he said, they worship Lucifer. Jeez. See, don't say that too loud in Boulder. He says, I've converted in my life 5,000 Hindus, converted only one Islamic person, talking about India. I said, what's the difference? He says, well, he says, easy to refute 250 million gods, very hard to refute one counterfeit. And anyway, he says that he believes that this power that Allah exercises is directly demonic and much, much more difficult to deal with. Anyway, he says, however, in America... I asked him once, I said, why did you see possessions in America? He says, oh, devil's very lazy. Possession's very hard work. He says, he's got too many things he can use in America. Pornography, drugs, sexual promiscuity, all kinds of things he can use in America. Doesn't need to. Now, I think it's a little more complex than that. I think that the truth is that India still, even though it's being Christianized, India is still an old covenant nation. And there is something that is simply direct about the capacities of dark powers in an old covenant nation. That is not true. See, when Boniface went first to Germany or St. Patrick first went to Ireland, Ireland today is not like it was when St. Patrick went there the first time. We all know that. But what he says you do see is very subtle, very subtle things that happen in people's lives. Demonic powers attach themselves. I says, well, what's the difference between mental illness and demonic? He says, oh, this is very complex. He says what the devil always uses are uses holes in people, uses openings in people, wounds in people. So any weakness you have, so if you have a genetic weakness, if you have a chemical weakness, 
He says, if you have a weakness that you've opened up through sin, he says, demonic powers can get in through that. And there is often various kinds of control that happen through that. When you look at this story, John the Baptist, what you see, because there's one thing I'm going to leave out, and I may interact with you a little bit here, Jim, to get you to clarify a thing or two, but what you see are the last two phases of civilization. See, over here in the story of the gathering madman, you see the first phase of civilization. That's the sort of thing you see in India, sort of thing you see in tribal life. The snake is just dealing directly with you. However, here, you can be perfectly clear and perfectly sure that there are demonic and dark powers that are here, but they are not directly at work. They are using intermediaries. And if we look at, again, this is old biblical horizons teaching, but you don't just see one fall in the book of Genesis, although I suppose for our systematic purposes, we do see one sort of big fall, our Augustinian doctrine of original sin. You see the fall of Adam. But interestingly, biblically, in a biblical theological sense, theological biblical you see three falls. You see the immediate fall in which they just talk to this snake, and the snake talks to them, and they take this fruit. And then you see a second fall with brother-brother rivalry when Cain murders Abel. And then you see a third fall which leads to the flood, which is the intermarriage of the sons of God with the daughters of men. And then you see a repetition of this throughout the Bible. I'll just give you two places where you see a repetition. And in the book of Isaiah, you would see primarily the sin of idolatry. Sin of idolatry is probably the direct worship of something that's demonic. So Isaiah deals directly with idolatry. Book of Jeremiah deals mostly with brother-brother sin, with rivalry against brothers. And then, of course, after the Babylonian captivity, the great problem is intermarriage. Book of Ezra, book of Nehemiah, you see the temptation to intermarry with the women of foreign cultures. Another place you see this in three generations with Samuel. Samuel is still dealing with tribal peoples. And he is dealing probably although the Old Testament text doesn't say a lot about it, but you're dealing directly with idolatry. That's the problem all the way through the book of Judges. So you're dealing straight with a snake. After Saul becomes king, you've got this brother-brother rivalry, Saul and David. Saul wants to murder David over a period of more than a decade. And then the third generation with Solomon. Solomon begins with true intermarriage with the Shulamite bride, but with a thousand women, his heart is drawn away from the true and the living God. Now, the story of John the Baptist, and I'm sure a lot of this is very familiar to most of you, but the story of the beheading of John the Baptist, of course, deals with King Herod. And what this really is is a retelling of a very old story in the Old Testament. I won't belabor this because I think most of you know this, but this is a retelling of the story of Jacob and Esau. Jesus is a linear descendant of Jacob, and King Herod is a linear descendant of Esau. And just as Esau wanted to murder Jacob in the Old Testament, so Herod wants to murder, well, we know the story of the slaughter of the innocents at the beginning of the Gospels before Jesus is an infant. That's the same story. And here we're seeing an outworking of something like the same thing. We see there's this brother-brother rivalry with Jesus, with John the Baptist, and there's a brother-brother rivalry with King Herod with his brother, and the object of desire with his brother is his wife. So what this actually includes is brother-brother rivalry, 
which is like Cain and Abel. And we also at least get a tinge or we get a hint of marital problems, which is the third civilizational development of these kind of things. There is, I think, a double meaning when John the Baptist got himself in trouble was when he said, it is unlawful for you to have your brother's wife. There's surely a double meaning in that because, of course, the immediate application of that is your brother, Philip, you have stolen his wife and you've taken her to be your wife. But there is the more remote application to this in a typological sense and in a blood sense. Who is his brother? Who would it be? Who's his brother? Jesus. And therefore, if it's unlawful for you to have your brother's wife, who's his wife? Israel. See, so if it's unlawful, in other words, Herod is unlawfully on this throne. This lawfully is the throne that would belong to Jesus because he's the linear descendant of David. So you have something of a double meaning here. Now, the contention that I want to make here is that behind all of this, and these are the two ways in which I think dark or demonic powers work themselves out. First works itself out in brother-brother rivalry, and secondly, it's going to work itself out in some kind of intermarriage or some kind of sexual confusion. And in the United States today, I don't know where you would see something like the first phase of civilization. You might have to go to the third world. Do you have any answer for that? Do we have anything that's comparable to to the first set of civilization, if you will, or the first development where people are talking straight to the snake? I mean, I suppose if you've got the occult and that kind of thing, but in the United States, pardon? Okay, Louisiana. All right. All right. Depending on where you are, the primary source of conflict in your life, in your city, in your church, is either going to be brother-brother conflict or it's going to be sexual confusion of one sort or another. Any place that's a blue-collar industrial place, you're going to have lots of brother-brother rivalry. You've got all these tough guys, and they like to fight, and their wives probably don't have a whole lot of influence in their lives. They're, you know, pretty... Uh, I bet you got this in Russia. This is probably almost a description of Russia. The wife doesn't count for a whole lot. She doesn't have a whole lot of influence, but the guys are at each other's throats a lot. Now... At least once a year, it's actually been several years since I've done this, but I take the bus down here. I actually come down to Florida on the Greyhound. And I do it for two reasons. I do it for three reasons, maybe. One is I really don't like to fly. I find flying very boring. I actually like to see the country, and there's no train that comes down here. And the third is I see a group of people that otherwise I never interact with. If it wasn't for Greyhound, the poor wouldn't go anywhere in this country. Well... On this particular bus, I had a very interesting experience. I almost got my teeth kicked in. I sat down, and I sat foolishly on the inside. The worst thing about riding on a Greyhound for me is I have very long legs, and there's just no place to put them. And I foolishly, see what I do the best is I sit on an aisle, I could kind of stick my legs out. Well, I sat on the inside with the hopes that the bus wouldn't be full, and I'd get a whole seat to myself. Well... In walks this fellow, and the bus is filling up, and he says, can I sit down? And what could I say? Okay. So I strike up a conversation with him. He's a truck driver. And lives in a town not too far from me. And we have a pleasant conversation. And 
we're riding, we're probably 150 miles out of Denver. I just, you know, I just don't fit in this seat, and I keep sliding over. I keep sliding over. And after a while, this guy takes his legs and goes like this on me. I thought he was asleep, you know, I thought he was jerking in his sleep. I didn't know what was going on. We rode about another 100 miles, and he finally turned to me and said, What are you doing? You trying to hit up on me? You know, geez, you know, he says, well, you're one of those dirty queers and you keep trying to touch me, you know, and, and, you know, there wasn't anything I could say. See, I already told him I was a pastor and he says, you're a pastor and what do you do to people in your church, you know, and, guy just, I mean, this guy just, this guy just absolutely went off. It was just like a gun. And he said, do you want to sit in this seat? He says, why can't you keep your legs to yourself? And I, see, I wasn't even aware of this. I was just aware of the fact that I just kept kind of scooting back and trying to, I was literally, I was not aware that I ever touched the guy, but, you know, I'm sure I had. And when you're a blue-collar guy, this is not what you do. You don't go around being touchy, and you just don't do that. So he says, you want to change places with me? And I said, well, yeah, and I apologized effusively and didn't do any good, and I knew it wouldn't do any good. Well, he went off like a gun for, it must have been the next 50 miles, and I just sat there and endured it, and after a while he started saying, he said, you really want me to feel like an ass, don't you? And I said, no. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, maybe you weren't touching me like that. And he was starting to cool down. And finally he cooled way down and we started having, he says, are you really a pastor? And I said, yeah, I'm really a pastor. (laughs) And he ended up sort of opening up his whole life to me and told me his whole life story and and I was able to talk to him about some things, and I hope it helped him. I hope it, I mean, it turned out actually he'd been involved in a church for a long time, and he was stuck in his life, and he just couldn't get anywhere. And and I had a lot of things I was able to say, and we ended up being, he just said, you know, it's just this great conversation. And, and in fact, it was a kind of a crisis in his life, and this is really what opened him up. Well, the point, though, is this is a perfect example of brother-brother rivalry, you see. Now, Boulder... I don't know if a lot of people would give a rip if you touched them like that, to tell you the truth. But on the Greyhound bus, you just better stay over on your side and let this guy stay over on his side. And, you know, you don't look at people the wrong way and, and that kind of thing. Well, here you've got very clearly brother-brother rivalry. And the next thing that you've got in the next phase of civilization is intermarriage. Solomon intermarries with thousand women and they draw his heart away to the false gods and so on and that is really a synonym it's a literal thing of course but it's really a synonym for syncretism that means that you just mix everything up you believe in everything and what you always end up believing in is humanity and the only virtue that is really preached in any synchristic empire would be tolerance the roman empire was very tolerant and the United States for the last 50 to 70 years, as John Dewey has more or less triumphed, the only virtue that really counts for anything is tolerance. Because it's just wrong. The only kind of fascism is any sort of absolutism. Anybody who would claim to have the truth, they're the people who are wrong. Now, where I come from, and it's going to be different. If you live in a metropolis, metropolitan area, if you're in a university environment, in all likelihood, you live in a much more synchristic world. And it is always characterized by some kind of sexual confusion. 
the reason I had Jeff asked me, do you have an Old Testament passage? And I had Daniel chapter 1 read. The reason I had Daniel chapter 1 read, well, I thought it might fit in a little bit with what Jim was doing. And what you really see is a recounting of the fall, except it's done the right way. You have this offer of the king's food, wine and rich food from his table. And they come to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they offer them this rich food. And Daniel says, no, he won't take the food from the king's table. That's very much like saying no to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The way this little passage ends up when you finish it is because he refuses this food, refuses the tree, he's given knowledge. says he understands all the mysteries. He's given insight into all kinds of things because he resisted this. Now, what I was particularly interested in, in in this chapter is that the person who offers them this food in the passage itself is a eunuch, or it's the chief of the eunuchs. I suppose you couldn't actually prove it was a eunuch himself. It's the chief of the eunuchs. But you see, if I put all this together with where Daniel is in the history of the world, that fits. In other words, who's going to offer you the apple, but it's going to be a female figure in a confused form? See, that fits exactly with an empire world that is tolerant of everything. And it's always marked by some kind of sexual confusion. And in this sexual confusion, that is going to be where dark powers work. Now, the simple suggestion I'm going to make tonight is that even though I don't understand the exact difference between what happens in India and what happens in the United States, or what happened in the Old Covenant, what happens in the New Covenant. That clearly now we are not under the stokia, or the elements of the world, as it says in the book of Galatians. We've become adults. We're given more authority. I don't understand exactly the difference. But what is clear is that the church is given authority over dark powers to speak to those dark powers. And I think that this is something that we need to learn to take far more seriously. In this particular passage, what is it that's ultimately behind the conflict between Herod and his brother, Philip? Well, ultimately, it's demonic dark powers who are always stirring things up. Now, the devil is actually given lots of names, but the name I'm the most interested in tonight is he is called the accuser. I do a considerable amount of counseling. And one of the things I've become completely convinced of is that, by and large, the human race is paranoid. A great many of our problems come from things we think that people are thinking about us or things we think that people are saying about us. I don't know how different, in many ways, our age is from Luther's age, but I do know, and I was able to talk to this young man on the bus about this, primary difference in the application of justification by faith today from Luther's time. In Luther's time, where Luther felt condemnation coming from was from God. That's very rare in our world. Very rare that you will step out on the street and find people who are just overwhelmed with this feeling of an angry God. That just doesn't exist. But what people feel everywhere is the feeling that from out there, there is radical and deep condemnation. And I told this young man that. He had actually been to a Bible college, it turned out. And I said, you know the difference between justification by faith and application in Luther's time and in our time is this. And he said, gosh, he said, I never thought of that. He said, that's how I feel. He said, that's why I get angry all the time. That's why I went off on you. See, he thought all kinds of things about me. 
that were just nuts. Now, here's my point. Are we Girardians? In other words, are we supernatural reductionists at this point? Where do you think these ideas come from? Do we have a purely psychological view of this? Or do you think it's possible, when you read your New Testament as a supernaturalist, that there is actually someone in the background who is whispering all kinds of things? And my contention is, this is partially, see Jim said this is a laboratory. Well, I dare to stand up here and say this. I'm kind of scared to say it, actually. They'll think I'm... But what I'm discovering in my own ministry where I'm at, and even in counseling that I'm doing, is there are things that I am finding I do not believe I can adequately account for by psychological analysis or even by chemical analysis. I believe that there are supernatural powers at work. And if the church does not have authority over these supernatural powers, there are things we cannot do. Now, see, I think this young man, he told me something about his past. There's plenty of sex. He said, sex, drugs, rock and roll. And if my friend Father Herman is right, there are all kinds of, you see, these are wounds, and these are openings, and these are places where dark powers are given access to us. And while it would be an exceedingly unusual thing in the first world or in the United States for us to encounter a possessed person, I suppose such a thing could happen. But if Father Herman's never met one, it's probably really rare. But I do think that these dark powers are back there saying all kinds of things, and we go around psychologizing everything. Now, you see, Herod and Philip are rivals with one another. Why? Well, it's very clear if there's anything that it would be advantageous for dark powers to control, it would be thrones. So why don't you just start talking to these two brothers about each other, whipping them all up in their minds, making them both paranoid about each other, and then put a woman in the middle who is the object of desire, and you can just create all kinds of havoc. Now, the second thing that we've got here, see, I just I tell you this little story, and I think, by the way, so I just put my mind to work, and I think of every blue-collar situation I've ever been in, I can't believe how paranoid most of the men are in those situations. Am I not correct? You work in a factory, and you do blue-collar, you do construction work, and see, I don't think people are just throwing hammers at each other for chemical reasons. I really don't. Okay, now, what you've got, secondly here, is this whole story about Herodias, Philip's wife, who's now become... Herod's wife. And if you want the clearest analysis of this, I think you have to go back to Genesis chapter 3. Now, I hope this is helpful. I really tremble here, but to tell you the truth, I'm really sick of evangelical books that tell men how to really get tough, how to be the head of their home, how to be in charge, You know, in the first place, I've never seen any of them do any good. And I say this with a lot of affection. I come from, oddly enough, Boulder, Colorado, is the place where Promise Keepers started. And I know some of the people personally. I know Coach McCartney a little bit. And I know his close associate that he began this with reasonably well. And I went to Promise Keepers, and I found it helpful for the first three or four years. But there's a limit. 
you know, you get told to be the head of your household. Well, so you get to, it becomes schizophrenic. On the one hand, well, you've got to be the head of your household. On the other hand, you've got to serve your wife. And you never know how to put those two things together. Now, see, here's, I think, what is left out of everything. If I read the Genesis 3 account, what was it that Adam should have done? Pardon? Against what? Against He should have, yeah, and what, just describe me what he should have done. Well, if I had been him, well. <laughs> you, yeah. <laughs> there's, now there's confidence for you. <laughs> I didn't word that. <laughs> no, he should have said, I don't know what to do, but there's someone here who's goofing things up. Will you please help me? He should have said that. Okay, uh, maybe that's what he should have done. I'll tell you what I think he should have done. And I, he should have taken the snake by the throat, thrown him on the ground, and stomped on his head. That's what Jesus did. Now, here's what I think it means to be the head of your household. I don't think it means that you're a big, rough, tough guy. See, you got this schizophrenia. On the one hand, we're all told we're supposed to serve our wives, wash our wives' feet. Well, then your wife ends up being in control if you take that all the way. On the other hand, we're told you're supposed to be a big, rough, tough evangelical who runs his home and nothing's out of order and your kids, you know, this and that. And, and if you take that too far, you end up being in Islam. Ah, but you see what Genesis chapter 3 says is he should have just taken that snake and stomped on his head. The peculiar authority of the man is that he has authority over the snake. And in every home, see, if you're talking about brother-brother rivalry, hey, you got this devil back there and he's just whack. He's talking away, making everybody paranoid. The same thing happens in the home. And one of the reasons that, for example, we're certainly on the road to homosexual marriage since the last Supreme Court decision. We just got it. It just got it in Canada. We have any Canadians here? Canada just got it. Yeah, we do have a Canadian here. That's right. And we're certainly on the road to that here. There's only one sexual relationship in which real wisdom and knowledge can grow, and that is the marital relationship. Any other relationship, there's only one voice that's going to eventually be behind everything, and that's the voice of the snake. But in a Christian marriage, here's what is possible. You see, what the Bible tells us is there's all this talking going on in the background. Sometimes we don't think our wives hear things right. Gentlemen, I'm going to take a risk here. Have you ever tried to correct your wife's perceptions? Good luck. Because very often there are at least two voices at work. And the peculiar authority of the male in the home is he can shut the snake up. You don't have authority over your... You know, I, you know, the most awful phrase I hear in evangelicalism is, your job is to control your wife. Who said it's my job to control my wife? That's an awful thing to say. That's a terrible thing to say. My job is to silence the snake. And if the snake is silenced, then the Holy Spirit can speak, and actual wisdom can come through. I think, and I don't have to speak very far here, the worst experience that any of us can have is in our homes when all we feel is this massive confusion and communication is impossible. Huh? 
Well, biblically, what that means, as far as I can see, is you've got more than one voice in your home. And if I'm not silencing the snake, I'm not able to hear the Holy Spirit. And neither is she. If I silence the snake, gosh, there's peace, there's harmony. That's what I think. Okay, I took a big risk there, but you see, this is the account that we have is of Herod. Uh, oh, oh no, here's, here's where I'm going to go with this. Again, I'm going to take a big risk. <laughs> Do I dare? I don't know how many of you here are pastors or elders, but if you're a pastor or an elder, look, if you'll turn to Romans chapter 16, turn to Romans 16, and Paul says, this is the 17th verse of Romans 16, Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses, contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech they deceive the hearts of the simple. For your obedience has become known to all. Therefore I am glad on your behalf But I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. Now as I read this, he's talking about church conflict. And if any of you have been in a church for more than ten minutes, you know something about church conflict. There isn't anything more horrible. And what Paul is saying is, look, behind all church conflict ultimately is this voice. And his confidence is that the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. Church is very much like a marriage, in other words. You're going to have all these voices at work. And if we try to deal with these things in a purely sociological, purely psychological, if you've got family counseling theory, I don't care what you've got, if we stop on that level, I think it's wholly inadequate. See, we're not very much supernaturalists at this point. We sort of say, in a general sense, well, yeah, I think the devil's at work here, but we don't carry it much further. I think we've lost that whole sense of things. All right, so my contention tonight, simple contention, is, look, when I read the Gospels, the simple thing that I see is that Jesus is given authority over the evil one. And he speaks to the evil one. He says, come out do this, do that. You find Jesus personalizes all kinds of things. When he stands up and he speaks to the chaos, when he walks on the water, he says, peace, be still. seems to speak in a personal sense to the creation. But that's what we see all over the place in the Gospels. You just pick it out at random, you know that. Jesus speaks with authority to these demonic or dark powers, and they have to be obedient. Now, my contention is that that is something we should take very, very seriously. I want to just close, because I'm going to close with this, with this thought, that if you have this as a sense of reality, if we have some sense that we're dealing with satanic powers that make us paranoid, that tell us lies, that distort things, that stir up all kinds of conflict between us, and we're actually dealing with satanic powers, I think the first thought we have is, God, I'm going to become a crazy Pentecostal, you know, go around rebuking demons and that sort of thing. And what kind of fanatic is that going to make? The intriguing thing is that in actuality, it makes us gentler with people. 
because it dissociates. You see, there's something. Now, here's, here's an interesting thing. What we've seen in the last 40 or 50 years, 40 years, I suppose, in the evangelical world, is a reassertion of human responsibility, which is very important. I mean, you know, Jay Adams would have been right at the front of reassertion of human responsibility. But we can carry that too far. If you read the Bible, Jesus, he almost treats the human race, by and large, as being victims of these dark powers. And if his primary calling, or at least, I don't know if I want to say his primary, but one of the callings that he had was to destroy the works of the devil. The human race is in bondage to the works of the devil. And if Jesus has come to free us from the works of the devil, he treats the human race virtually as being victimized by these dark powers. And who we are called to exercise violent authority over are dark powers and not other human beings that distances us from the harshness that we exercise towards our brothers and our sisters. So when Paul says, for example, he's very clear, he says, it's not against flesh and blood that we battle, but against principalities and powers, against spiritual hosts of wickedness and high places and so on. He's very clear that there's this distinction to be made. I think that the way we read the account of Jesus with Peter is probably wrong. We read the account, you know, when Peter makes the confession, says, you are the Christ of God. And then a few minutes later, when Jesus recounts he's the Via Dolorosa, he's going to be crucified, and Peter forbids this to happen. And then Jesus, with this instant, says, get thee behind me, Satan. I think he's dissociating there. I don't think he's calling Peter Satan. I think he's dissociating. He's telling this dark power to get away from Peter. It's not harsh. It's actually kind of gentleness. So that's my final observation. I think it actually gives us a kind of distance that we need when we're ministering into all kinds of things that we cannot understand, that are confusing, that are dark, that don't make any sense to us. If we can dissociate what we see in front of us and around us, that phenomenon from that person or those persons, it's actually very helpful and it contributes a great deal to peace. I think I'll close with that. We are given this authority. We should believe that. We should exercise that. And we should be consistent supernaturalists. Amen. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.